Well, we turn now to the reading of God's Word, to the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, reading the first 35 verses. Those of you who were here last week will remember that Pastor Bob began a series of resurrection conversations, and he looked in the morning at Matthew's Gospel, and then in the evening at John's Gospel, and contemplating what to preach this morning suggested this passage, and he said, well, that fits very well with the series, and so we've titled this also Resurrection Conversations, but of course, the key verse is found in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. And so we'll look in particular at verses 13 through 35, but let us hear God's word from Luke 24, verses 1 through 35. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Well, the Lord bless this uh, wonderful reading of, of his word. Father, Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word and ask your blessing on us as we consider the resurrection of your son. And may that be just become real to us and may we just hold that as very important to us, we pray. And just bless Dr. Trumper as he brings this to us through the preaching of the word. Just bless him abundantly, too, as he brings that to us. And we pray for attentive minds and ears, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. O foolish ones and slow of heart, do believe. Luke 24, 13 through 35. The last number of years, one of the things that has impressed me about the Scriptures is the way in which the truth in Scripture is confirmed time and time again. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, you find going to the book of Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, that a truth had to be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's repeated then in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And then when you come into the New Testament, it's also found in Matthew 18. If you have a problem with another brother or sister and you feel that they have sinned against you, you go to them one-on-one, -on -one, and if they don't hear you, then you take two or three. And you find uh, Paul speaking of this also in 2 Corinthians 13, 1. And so it's marvelous then that uh, we are not reliant for our belief in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on a solitary witness. That could very easily be dismissed. But one of the remarkable things about the resurrection of Jesus is how well it is attested. On the one hand, it's attested by all four gospel writers. And you wonder why then that there are four who have written accounts of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Well, they are unified in the central fact, of course, but they are writing for different purposes. Matthew writes about the resurrection because he wants us to understand the majesty of this great event and the glory of the person who was raised from the dead. Mark writes because he's stressing the fact of the resurrection. It's not an opinion, it's a fact. Luke writes because he's saying that there are certain spiritual necessities that arise from the fact that Christ Jesus is raised from the dead. 
John writes about the resurrection as a touchstone or a test of character. And so we have these four gospel writers writing about the resurrection. But not only that, we have, it is estimated, nine different appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can put these appearances together from the gospels. But then you also have in 1 Corinthians 15, as we read, for our call to worship that litany of appearances that Paul speaks of, even saying that Christ appeared to 500 people at once. And if you don't believe me, go and check it out because they're still alive. Many of them are still alive to this day. It is so well attested, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with the uh, quotation of Charles Colson, who was imprisoned during the, as a result of the Watergate scandal. And how he came to faith in the Lord Jesus. He was well, Nixon's hitman. That's what he was known as. But he came to faith as a result of being caught out. And this is what he writes. I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years. And never once denying it. Everyone was beaten tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So of the multiple witnesses then, and the accounts of the resurrection, we're turning to Luke's account this morning, as it's found in Luke 24. Remember then Luke in giving us this account of the resurrection, is given it to us as a spiritual necessity. That's why he's interested in communicating it. And as we think of this spiritual necessity for which he's given us the account of the resurrection, three specific purposes come to mind. First is that the resurrection confirms. How else could we know, believer, that our sins are paid for at the cross of Christ, were it not for the fact that Jesus has come back to tell us that that is the case, were it not for the fact that God the Father who receives his payment for sin raises him again the third day. And so he comes and he says, believer, disciple, apostle, believer today, your sins are forgiven. It's a wonderful assurance that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, we could rely upon the words of Jesus from the cross. Luke 23, verse 43, records how Jesus says to the thief upon the cross, Today you shall be with me in paradise. And we could take that on faith. We could take his words on faith from John's gospel. It is finished. Tetelestai. One word, three words in English. It is finished. We take that on faith too. But how greater our assurance to know that having suffered at the ordination of God the Father upon the cross, that God the Father then raises him again to life, thereby assuring us that for those who look to Christ, their sins are forgiven. And we have not simply the missing body of Jesus to demonstrate it, but the evidence that he was and is alive. My mind goes back to studying in Germany 20 or so years ago. 
and we were meeting with our German class, and the teacher says, uh, Tim, can you go to the store and don't simply get a Rechnung, meaning a bill or an invoice, get a Quittung. I wondered what that was. I hadn't heard of it before, but it's basically the receipt that you've paid for whatever you've got from the store. And so I got what was required of me for the class. I went to the girl on the tin, till, and I said, my teacher wants a quittung. And she said, no, the rechnung is enough. So stupid me, I took her word for it. And I left the store. And I came back to the teacher, and she says, well, where's the quittung? I said, well, the girl on the till said all I needed was a rechnung. She gave me one of those looks. Her eyes went to the ceiling. Should have done it myself. Back, she had to go to the store to pick up the quittung. We call it a bill and a receipt. They call it a rechnung and a quittung. And that's what the cross and the resurrection is. The cross is one element, a vital element for sure. The payments that Christ has rendered for our sins, the wages of death being paid in his own death upon the cross. But the resurrection is the quittung, the receipt that our sins have been paid for in full by the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so we rejoice in the resurrection because it confirms, but secondly, we rejoice in the resurrection because it explains. Not only is the body missing, verses 1 to 3 of Luke 24, but the men who we know from comparison of the other accounts are angels, one being named the angel of the Lord, declares categorically that Jesus is risen from the dead, verses 4 through 6. And so this is important not simply because of what it says about our past, dear believer, but because of what it says about our future. Because as you read through Luke 24, you find that Jesus' body, although there is evidently points of contact with the body that he had before he was raised from the dead, it now has different properties whereby Jesus can appear suddenly, he can vanish, and then he can appear somewhere else. In other words, there are different properties of the resurrection body which we'll come back to, each of which points to the fact that Christ's resurrection of the dead is the prototype of the resurrection of God's people from the dead at the end of the age. And so if you want to know more about what it will be like on the day of Jesus Christ, to have a raised body, you can do little better than go to the resurrection accounts and say, well, what was Jesus' body like when he was raised from the dead? We're not told all that it will be like in what Jesus calls the new world, the regeneration in Matthew 19. But we do get some glimpses here that the resurrection has relevance not simply to our past, assuring us that our sins are paid for in full, but also to our future, that God is interested not simply in the redemption of our souls, but also the redemption of our bodies. And so what does the believer do? The believer clings to the cross of Christ on the one hand, but also on the other embraces the resurrection as a fact. Because in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, we know our sins are paid for. And in the resurrection, we know that that payment has been accepted. And on the basis of that past payment, we have a great future. The Christ was raised from the dead and being united to Christ in his death, but also in his resurrection, we too shall be raised 
again from the dead. Let me speak to you a moment if you do not know your sins forgiven. If you do not know that you have a relationship with God. This is it. It's wonderfully simple even while it remains tremendously profound. You are called to cling to the cross as your only hope. You are called to embrace the resurrection. There are those here this morning who can testify how their lives were changed by clinging to the cross, the payment of our sins, embracing the resurrection, the wonderful hope that we have that this God who cares enough for our souls to sacrifice His own Son also cares for our bodies and promises us that they will be raised again from the dead. And so thirdly, by way of introduction, the resurrection motivates. The resurrection not only addresses the past and addresses the future, but it also addresses the present. We tend to forget just how lowly things were at the time in which Jesus died. One reading, I've been reading a wonderful book called The Life of Christ from the 19th century by a man called Frederick Farrer. If you love the study of the scriptures, I highly recommend it to you if you can get hold of it. This is what he writes about the situation when Jesus died. At the moment when Christ died, nothing could have seemed more abjectly weak, more pitifully hopeless, more absolutely doomed to scorn and extinction than the church which he had founded. And yet, so certain is Luke of the resurrection that he records the role of the women whose testimony was not received in law. He records the fact, he doesn't cover over the fact, that there was Cleopas and his fellow traveler or his wife, we don't know which, who were heading out of Jerusalem because they did not believe he had been raised from the dead. Luke is so confident in the resurrection that he can include these details. He's not trying to cover up anything. He's not trying to give some sort of spin so that Christ doesn't look as if he failed in founding the church. Not at all. And so Luke's point is that if Christ is raised, then there is no place for discouragement. Maybe I've mentioned it before, but I think it's worth repeating. There is a wonderful evangelistic course called Christianity Explored. And it comes out of all souls lying in place in London. And the leader of that course, the man who founded it and put it together, Rico Tice, tells in the series of videos that go with the course of going to visit a friend of his who was dying of cancer. It's always poignant when you go to visit somebody your own age who's dying of cancer. He explains that he didn't really know what to say to his friend who was dying of cancer. And so he blurts out the words, what is, what is it like to die? And the brother who's dying just says to him, Rico, Jesus is raised. Jesus is raised. You see, if this fact is true, then it changes everything. Somebody like Lee Strobel has found this as well. Well, where do I start? investigating the world religions. Where do I begin finding out if Christianity is true? I've got this headache on my hands. My wife has become a Christian. What do I do? Well, it really all boils down to this. If Jesus is alive, then I can forget the other religions. If he's dead, I can forget Christianity. It all hinges on this. And so here we have Luke trying to apply pastorally 
the implications of the resurrection for those who may be doubting, those who may be squandering, those who might be splashing around in the water, not knowing if they can keep their head above the water. And he says, listen, if Jesus is raised, everything is changed. And so in the account of Jesus meeting with Cleopas and his fellow traveler on the road to Emmaus, in what follows from verse 13, we notice three things, three elements of discouragement. Notice with me, first of all, the dynamics of discouragement, verses 13 and 14. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Notice how contrary this episode is. If you look at the other accounts of the resurrection, you find that there's the women who are going to the tomb. And then there's Peter and John who are racing to the tomb. It appears that John won the race, but Peter being the impulsive one, notwithstanding the dictates of the law that they were not to be uh, touching a dead body, he rushes into the tomb to see what has happened. They are going to the tomb. And then we have this contrary episode of Cleopas and his fellow traveler going away from the tomb. Why then are these two leaving Jerusalem when others are heading to the tomb? Well, three reasons come to mind. First of all, they minimize the facts. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Now, notice that they are not leaving the city because they don't know what's going on. They know exactly what is going on. You may think that from verse 13, they don't know what's going on. But if you compare verse 13 with verse 22, they give a rather detailed account of what's been happening. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. In other words, they were with the apostles when the women reported that the body was missing. Well, I don't know about you, but that might have got my attention. Unless I was discouraged like Cleopas and his fellow traveler. And then verse 23, they remained in the upper room until Peter and John returned to confirm the report of the women. Now, initially, the report of the women was like an idle tale. Women weren't taken seriously. But now they take seriously the report because Peter and John return and say, yes, the, the body is in fact missing. The problem lay not with the witness of the women, for the witness of the men made no difference, but with their lack of belief in the report of the angels that he was alive. Let me say to you, as I say to myself this morning, if we claim to belong to the Lord, and yet we find ourselves in a state of discouragement, our discouragement is due not to a lack of evidence about the truth of the gospel, but in this moment of our journey to a lack of faith. In our unbelief, we play down the facts and play up emotions. And so I tend to think of encouragement and discouragement like two balloons. And when we become discouraged, we meddle with these two balloons. And so we've got this balloon, and on this balloon, it's inflated. And on the, word, on the balloon are the words encouragement. When we are discouraged, what do we do? Well, we untie the balloon. We let the air out. 
And then we have this uh, other balloon, and it's not inflated yet, but on the words of it, a discouragement. We start blowing into it. And so the words encouragement, the balloon encouragement is deflated, and the balloon discouragement is inflated. What are we doing? Well, we are minimizing the facts when we enter into discouragement. The second thing we're doing, we are minimizing fellowship. The second half of verse 13, they're walking off seven miles from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. We're not sure where Emmaus was, but we know it's a distance from Jerusalem. They have no immediate reason to leave Jerusalem. They would have been better off nurturing fellowship with the disciples and the apostles who are still in the city. But they have convinced themselves that there is nothing left in the city for which to hang around. But this may not have been as innocent as it seems, for you recall that uh, the disciples have been told to go to Galilee and there they would see him. Now, we don't know whether that directive was specifically to the apostles or to the apostles and to the disciples at large. But regardless, there was the report that he was alive and that he would meet with his people. And so instead of going to the north of the country in great expectation, great hope that they would meet with the Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of God's people, they are going off alone. They are going back to Emmaus. And you will know, as I know, when we are discouraged, that's how discouragement hits us. We start wandering away from the fellowship of God's people. The Puritan, Thomas Watson, puts it like this. Despair cuts the sinews of endeavor. Have you noticed that? I've noticed it. That when I enter into the pit of discouragement, what do I do? Well, you see, I find ways of not being so consistent at church. If I'm involved in a ministry, well, I find ways, excuses for not carrying on the ministry anymore. And really what I'm thinking in my mind is this, what's the point? What's the good of it? What good does it do? Let somebody else carry the weight. Let somebody else attend worship. Let somebody else do this, do that, the other. Despair has cut the sinews of endeavor. That's exactly what's happening with Cleopas and his fellow travelers. No point staying in Jerusalem. We'll come back to this point. They're not thinking about the other disciples there who might need encouragement and who might need sustenance. They're thinking of themselves. It's not worth our time, our energy, staying in Jerusalem, and so we're heading off to Emmaus. Brother and sister, if you are not aware, even that you're discouraged, this is one of the hallmarks of it. And so the third thing they do is they minimize feeling, verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Pictured the scene. Verse 17 says they were looking sad. So they're probably kicking up the dust as they go. Their heads are down. They're talking to one another about all that's happened. Not in a positive sense, but in a negative sense. They have all this evidence that Jesus is alive, but they're doing nothing with it. And so they are feeding the discouragement of one another. That's how discouragement works. That's how discouragement spreads. We feed each other with the negative. And we're looking sad. Reminds me of walking through the university as an undergraduate on one occasion. I felt highly indicted by it. There was a Jewish student in my class. And he walks past me in the library 
And as he walks past me in the library, he says, smile, it may never happen. I thought to myself, well, that's a great witness. And so Jesus appears to them. They are minimizing feelings of excitement. They are wallowing in this discouragement, wallowing in being down. If only joy spread as quickly as discouragement. You say, well, is there never an occasion then about speaking if you are discouraged? Should we just be stoics and keep our mouths shut and say nothing? Well, here are a few pieces of advice. That if you are discouraged, speak according to the facts, not your spin upon the facts. If you are discouraged, speak to the relevant person or body, not to the body at large. If you are discouraged, speak for the strengthening of the fellowship, not the destruction of the fellowship. Listen to what one writer says. Our feelings of depression and despair tell more about ourselves than about the way things are. Now, we have much as a congregation for which to be encouraged. We say, well, this isn't very relevant to us, but what do we do with the ministry of the Word? Well, we store it in our hearts, we store it in our minds, so that if there should come a time in which we are discouraged, then we go back to our mental file of the sermons we've heard and say, this is what we are to do. I do not have a right to go spreading to the congregation my discouragement. If I think that there is a legitimate issue about which there is cause to be discouraged, then I go to the appropriate person or the appropriate body, chiefly the elders. And I go not according to my possibly warped understanding of things, but I go according to the facts, and I point out facts, not opinions. And I only share that which is for the strengthening of the body, not the undercutting, the undermining of the body. And in that way, I may actually make a constructive contribution. So the dynamics of discouragement, the minimizing of the facts, minimizing of fellowship, minimizing of feeling. And then verses 15 through 24, the defeat of discouragement. The passage teaches us three essentials about how discouragement is defeated. And the first and most obvious is the presence of Christ. Jesus is newly raised. He hasn't lost his pastoral care for the people. So what is he doing? Well, as the arch-shepherd of his people, he's going around encouraging these disciples who are abjectly weak. And so what has he done? Well, he's met with Mary, Mary Magdalene, as we read in John 20. He's met with the women heading to the disciples, Matthew 28, 9 to 10. He's met with Peter, although that's not recorded, although we have reference to it in verse 34. Here of Luke 24 and 1 Corinthians 15, 5. And now, fourthly, he catches up with Cleopas and his wife or fellow traveler on the road to Emmaus. He suddenly appears on the road and he draws near to them. The amazing thing we're told here is that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That is highly essential because if Jesus had been spotted by them straight away, he could not minister pastorally to them. Jesus is interested not simply in proving that he is alive, but he wants to minister so that they mature in their walk, so that they are not so easily discouraged next time they think they have cause to be discouraged. And either 
It's a human thing that they don't expect him to be alive and so they don't recognize him. Or it's a heavenly thing in which a veil is put over their eyes so that they don't recognize Jesus until he has done surgery upon their souls. My father led a tour to Israel a number of years ago, 1976. And he's speaking in the hotel. He's, it's the Lord's Day and he's giving a sermon. As he's given this sermon, there's a man in the front row staring at him. And he's a bit off-putting. He's leaning on the back of the chair and he's just staring at him as he's speaking. And then suddenly the man who's leaning over the back of the chair says, in the middle of the sermon, he doesn't even recognize his own friend. My father looked at him, didn't recognize him. So he carried on preaching. And the voice came again. He doesn't even recognize his own friend. Well, what was the problem? Well, he didn't expect to see a friend from Wales sitting in a hotel in Jerusalem listening to him preach. And so there was this mental block in which he didn't understand. He didn't recognize his own friend. And there may be something of that going on where the disciples are in such a depth of discouragement that they can't even recognize Jesus when they see him. But God, of course, is sovereign over all these things, and so it's more likely to be the fact that a veil is put over their eyes while Jesus addresses their soul about the very reason why they are discouraged before revealing to them, hey, here I am. Don't you get it? And so the presence of Christ is the beginning of which we get over our discouragement. It is the sovereign prerogative of God to draw near to his people. But there's something for us here to learn. If we see brothers and sisters who are discouraged, what is the number one thing we pray for them? Is that they would know the presence of Christ drawing near to them. Because the presence of Christ doesn't necessarily change the facts. It need not change the facts. But it does change radically our outlook upon the facts. The defeat of discouragement then is found in the probing of concern, verses 17 through 19. A wonderful episode here opens up. Jesus shows himself to be the model pastor. How does he do it? Well, he poses a series of questions, and he does so for two reasons. First, to get them speaking to him. Oh, they've been speaking to each other, feeding the negativity, feeding the discouragement, and they are looking sad. But he wants to change the dynamics, so they start speaking to him. And they are in disbelief that he doesn't know what's going on. And so he says, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And he stood still, looking sad. And you can tell the sarcasm in the voice of Cleobas. Where have you been, man? That's what he's saying in effect. Where have you been? Don't you know what's been going on? Don't you know? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And then he asks him a second question. Brilliant, pastorally. What thing? Jesus is not lying to them. He's playing ignorant in order that he can hear from them why they are discouraged. 
we recover from our discouragement. Not when we stop listening to ourselves, but when we stop listening to ourselves, when we stop listening to ourselves in the context of objective spiritual assessment. In other words, when there is accountability for the things that are going through our minds, the thoughts that are bringing us down. But we lose that sense of accountability when we break loose of fellowship and start being lords of the way in which we think. Thirdly, discouragement is defeated when we personalize the complaint, verses 19 through 24. As Cleopas articulates his personal discouragement, Jesus gets to hear the underlying causes of it. What are the two causes? First of all, they have underestimated who Jesus is. Notice the way in which Cleopas speaks. He speaks about a prophet from Nazareth, mighty indeed, a word before God and all the people. But he does not attribute to him his deity. He does not understand that Jesus Christ, this prophet of Nazareth, was the Son of God. And therefore, everything hits rock bottom when he reads that, or hears, or experiences, that Jesus is crucified and he died. But he wouldn't be so discouraged if that underestimating of Jesus went hand in hand with an overestimating of himself. And so what does he say? Verses 21 through 23. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The we is emphatic there. It's the first word in the sentence, meaning this, that it wasn't the plan of Christ which matters. It was my plan. I had a different view of Jesus. I had an idea of how things should fall out. I thought that he was going to redeem Israel. In other words, I thought he was going to release us from the Roman occupation. I thought he was going to do something wonderfully, politically, militarily. But then he died, just like everybody else, just like every other prophet. He died. But we had hoped. We had hoped. And so he reports on the reports that have come. But notice how he ends the reports. But we did not see, verse 24. It's the same problem with Thomas. Unless I see him, I will not believe. All the evidence points in the direction that he is alive. But unless I see him, unless we see him, then we don't believe in the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, recognize this seesaw movement in your own discouragement. The less you make of Christ the more you'll make of yourself, and discouragement sets in. The less you make of yourself, the more you make of Christ, and encouragement sets in. It's a spiritual seesaw that's going on here. And so thirdly, we come to the death of discouragement, verses 25 through 35. Discouragement dies the more we get in tune with God. Understand several things. Understand God's word, verse 25 through 27. Jesus has still not told them who he is, but now he speaks with authority and says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. And he gives them this Bible study, and you notice what he says. On the one hand, he indicts them for their lack of faith, and on the other hand, he indicts them for their lack of interpreting the Scriptures. Two things going on there. Well, what's the issue? Well, the 
theologian Anselm talked about faith-seeking understanding. This is what those who are truly of faith do. They are granted the gift of faith. They are embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so out of that, they go to the Scriptures, they dig into the Scriptures, they search the Scriptures, and they ask God for the right interpretation of the Scriptures. Jesus says, you are slow of heart to believe. And what's the result of that? You didn't interpret the Scriptures aright. You misinterpreted them. Well, what was the problem? Well, they read the Hebrew Scriptures, and when they read of glory, they knew that that belonged to God. But when they read of suffering, they thought that must belong to Israel, because Israel is suffering. They didn't conceive that the same God who is all-glorious would, in the person of the Messiah, enter into suffering so that they might come to glory. We too must read the Scriptures with faith. What does faith do? Faith gains us illumination. Faith utilizes the doctrines and promises. Faith enables us to persevere. Faith cheers our hearts against all the odds. Faith renews our energies. Secondly, they didn't understand God's will. God's will is not simply that we believe the word, but that we seek fellowship with Christ. Notice on the one hand how Jesus ministers to them in their discouragement. He appears on the road to Emmaus. He comes to them. They are in such a pit of discouragement that he sees them in their inability, so he draws near to them. He also draws near to us when we are in the pit of backsliding. Think of the letter he writes to the church in Laodicea. He stands at the door and knocks. If anyone will open up, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. In other words, he takes the initiative when we're discouraged. He takes the initiative when we're backsliding. But typically in the norm of Christian living, we are the ones who are saying, come in, stay the night with me. This is what my Christian life is about. It's about fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus. It's not just be about being a brain box with the Word of God so that I could win all the tests of biblical knowledge. I read the Scriptures not so that I might become an egghead about the Bible, but that I might fellowship with the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture and with the one who says, these are they which speak of me. And so on the one hand, you have knowledge of the Word of God, faith-seeking understanding, but that's not the end of it. Faith seeks understanding so that we might fellowship with the Lord Jesus, so that we might say, come in, stay with me, fellowship with me, live with me, love on me as I want to love on you. One writer has put it this way, in the gospel history, you find that Christ had a fourfold entertainment among men. Some received him into the house, not into the heart. Some into the heart, but not into the house. Some neither into the house nor the heart. Some both into the house and the heart. And so, brother and sister, if you're discouraged this morning, entertain Christ. Thirdly, understand God's world. We remain in a fallen world, and there's going to be discouragement. There's plenty of occasion for setback, but Christ's resurrection is a promise of a new world. All believers will be redeemed in body as well as in soul. And so Christ's resurrection teaches us then that believers will be bodily alive. What else do we learn? 
that we shall be living on a new plane of existence. We will not simply be repeating the lives we have now. We'll be on a higher plane. Our bodies will have different properties whereby we can appear and we can disappear and we can appear again. Because not only will we be regenerated, but the whole earth will be regenerated. And so although we shall be bodily in new life, in eternal life, yet those bodies will have different properties. And ultimately, we'll be recognizable. Because once the veil had been removed, they recognized Jesus very well. And the amazing thing is this. He lived a never-ending life. He never died again. And neither will we. And so here's Cleopas, Paul Cleopas. We're the same as him. We're no different from him. We had hoped that this prophet, mighty indeed, before God and all the people, would redeem Israel. And Jesus comes and he smiles and says, Oh, Cleopas, dear Cleopas, I, I do wish you could think above your own plans a little bit. I am going to redeem the Israel of God, not simply Jews, but Gentiles from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And what is more, this is so fascinating, Cleopas, that the body with which you are walking down the road to Emmaus, I'm going to redeem that too. And you know, you're going to be like me. You're going to be raised, uh, united with me in my death, but also in my resurrection. And my resurrection body, you're one day going to have a resurrection body like it. And the amazing thing, Cleopas, is that from the vantage point of eternity, you'll be looking back and saying, what was I thinking? We persevere in the sure and certain knowledge that there is no discouragement on the new earth. We shall be fully satisfied with God's plans. And so fourthly, we'll understand God's ways. What's the result of all this? They are transformed, transformed. And so they say, did not our heart burn within us while he walked with us along the way? Jesus has now vanished and he's going to reappear with the 11 disciples. Did not our hearts burn within us? He taught us the scriptures on the one hand and we had fellowship with him on the other. And between these two things, the instruction of the word on the one hand and fellowship with Christ on the other, our hearts now burn. Our discouragement has evaporated. So what do we do with this newfound energy that we have to follow the Lord Jesus? Well, we're going to go back the seven miles into Jerusalem. We're going to find the disciples. And notice what they say to the disciples. He is risen and has appeared to Simon. You notice there's no addition of information that they've received. They have just, through fellowship with Christ, got different eyes upon the knowledge that they have. And isn't it amazing when we go from a state of discouragement to encouragement, how we see the same facts entirely differently? The truth has broken in upon them. And they embrace the very knowledge that they had before they set off down the road to Emmaus. And so I close this morning with a word to those who are not in relationship to God. And you say, well, I don't have a relationship with God, and so you're speaking to Christians here, and it's all very nice to know that Christians get discouraged too. But what's it got to do with me? I tell you, it's got everything to do with you. Why does Cleopas go back to Jerusalem? 
he goes back to wait with the disciples. And we don't know all about when they were in Galilee and when they were told to wait in Jerusalem, but we know this, that this risen Christ in his power has caused the gospel, as he said, to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And lo and behold, it's come to Marne. It's come to Coopersville. And it was in the massive will of God that Cleopas and his fellow traveler should go back, support the disciples, support in particular the apostles, as they, shortly to be empowered with the Spirit by the risen Christ, then ascended, begin to take the gospel out, gossiping the gospel, dying for the gospel here, living for the gospel here. And so the gospel, even by the time we get to the end of the canon of Scripture, that time scale, it's already left the Middle East. It's crossed over into Europe. And gradually it's crossed over from Europe to North America. And it's come from one part of North America to another. And it's come to us. And it's come across the centuries. And so there are a body of people sitting here today who say, as we said last, last Sunday morning, didn't we? Just as it is. We affirm the resurrection of Jesus. If it wasn't for Christ appearing to Cleopas and his fellow traveler, humanly speaking, none of us would probably be here this morning. But it was so vital that Christ's people be encouraged so that others may come to hear of the Lord Jesus. And it is so important, dear brother and sister, that we, if we have disconnected from church, if we have disconnected from the service of church, get on our bikes again and start pedaling. As J.I. Packer puts it, the victim of Calvary, if you can in fact call him the victim of Calvary, is now loose and at large. And the tempo with which I live my Christian life and you live your Christian life is directly connected to the extent to which we believe Jesus is alive. May God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that we have to learn from it. And we pray in particular for any who are discouraged this morning, that they would receive this as a word from you to them. And that it would come not only in truth, but in grace and in the power of your spirit. But Father, we pray for any who are yet to cling to the cross and embrace the resurrection. That you would be working powerfully by your spirit. That before this day is out, they would come to know the risen Savior. Grant gifts of repentance and faith this day, we pray, and we'll give you the glory as we see, even in our own day, evidence that Christ is alive. Hear us then, O God, we pray. And all the people say, Amen.